appreciate your prayers. Uh, if you, you know, uh, last week uh, my voice was pretty weak, got weaker as the sermon went along, and then uh, Sunday afternoon, and then Monday I had no voice. Um, I was at home all day Monday, and my wife said, uh, with me having no voice, she said it was the most peaceful day she's had uh, in a long time. So, um, anyway, uh, we, uh, uh, I found out a little bit later in the week, I was actually diagnosed with uh, like a bronchitis or something like that, and uh, God has given grace and good medicine, a good, good prescription to help through that. So thank you so much for your prayers for that. Uh, last week, we started uh, the first part of the second trip of Joseph's brothers uh, making, uh, th- that they made from Canaan, uh, where their father was, Jacob, down to e- Egypt, where their uh, brother, unbeknownst to them, was uh, the prime minister of, of Egypt. Uh, the account of the second trip actually goes from Genesis 43 through 45 in your Bible. And last week, we covered only the first part of the trip, Genesis 43, which uh, involved a, a family talk in Canaan and a family meal in Joseph's house in Egypt. At the beginning, in the family talk, uh, Jacob was concerned for the boys, and he offered them advice or counsel about uh, money that they should take with them. He offered them counsel about a gift that they could pull together to also offer. Uh, And he did all this before praying to God Almighty that the man down in Egypt would have tender compassion. For them, And uh, by the end of the chapter, Genesis 43, we saw that prayer answered when Joseph f- felt compassion for Benjamin. The same exact affection that Jacob had prayed for uh, to God Almighty before. Today we continue our attention on the second trip, and we're going to look at Genesis 44 and 45... As we start Genesis 44, uh, the boys wake up from the festivities of the family meal in Joseph's house, and they begin the journey home. This second part of the trip, uh, Genesis 44 and 45, uh, contain both a final test, that's Genesis 44, so if I were writing words next to the chapter heading, I'd put final test, Genesis 44, and then in Genesis 45, a final response. This end of the trip, I believe, contains one of the greatest demonstrations of grace and love found anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. One of the greatest demonstrations of love and grace. Uh, I've heard from several of you in the last few weeks saying, I can't wait to get to Genesis 44 or Genesis 45. I love the pictures of grace and love. And I think rightly so. The more I study it, the more I realize why you'd want to come to these chapters. And uh, so I would encourage you all, uh, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, or guests who are here as well, to pay close attention to the events of the story as we look at them in detail, and then we look ahead to Jesus and the Father's great love for us, which I think these events foreshadow for us. 
Okay, so we're going to start in Genesis 44 with the final test. Uh, The nature of the test becomes clear in the first 13 verses of Genesis 44. It involves something that Joseph plants uh, in the brothers' food sacks in verses 1 and 2. So look in your Bible at verse 1. It says, Then he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he, the steward, did as Joseph told him. Okay, so uh, just to pause for a second before we keep reading here. The steward fills up all their sacks, their food sacks, to the brim, and he includes a few surprise ingredients. He puts their money back in there again. Um, but you know, we learn not only are these sacks kind of busting at the seams with food, very vivid description in Hebrew, they're just full to abundance with so much grain that in one of them he puts a silver cup, Joseph's special cup, he puts it in the sack of Benjamin. That cup will be Joseph's second test in the very next verses. So I want you to look at verse 3. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Verse 6, when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your, from our Lord or from your Lord's house? Verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. All right, so let's stop and talk about the nature of this test for a while. I'm sure the brothers, the men, started off this day thinking God had been so good to them. Just before in Canaan, when they started on this journey, they had fears about what the man would do to them or what he would do to the youngest brother, Benjamin. But now they leave on their donkeys with bulging food sacks and are heading back to their father. Imagine their conversations. This is what a great trip. Okay, but they don't get very far into it when the steward arrives. And he brings accusation from Joseph himself. Joseph says someone has stolen his drinking and divination cup. Now divination is the practice of foreseeing the future. Or discovering hidden knowledge. And a cup could be used in divination by placing liquids or floating objects in the cup. And then looking for patterns in the way the movement goes. I don't know too much about divination. That's about all I know. 
I think what's going on here is Joseph maintains the appearance that he is a pagan Egyptian who superstitiously relies upon such objects as these. It's all part of the test. Well, the brothers object, and they say that they haven't stolen anything. And if it's found with any of them, that they will all become Joseph's slaves, and the guilty party should be executed, killed. The steward, however, pronounces something different. The one with the cup will become a servant, and the others will be innocent. Did you see that in verses 9 and 10? Look again at verse 9. This comes from the brothers. Which, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. It's like a weird exchange here, right? You know, you imagine the brothers like offering the solution. Okay, so you know, if someone has it, he should be killed. And the servant goes, yeah, just like you said. One who has it will be a servant, and the rest of you will be innocent. And the brothers are like, oh, okay, if that works, yeah, yeah that will be fine too. The steward, it's kind of weird, the steward gives a, a more lenient sort of perspective on it than even the brothers themselves. But uh, the text doesn't make much of that here, so we, can, we continue. In the end, we find out that the cup is in Benjamin's food sack, and the brothers can't believe it. So they tear all of their clothes, they get back on their donkeys, they head back to Egypt. That's the nature of the final test. And it really comes to the question, how will they respond now? Will they stick with their brother, or will they leave him all alone in slavery in Egypt? That sets us up for what I just call the test score. Because you have the nature of the test, and you have the test score. Will they pass or fail? Okay, and... Uh, we see the test score uh, in the next section. As they arrive at Joseph's house in verses 14 through 34, Joseph intersects intersects with one of the brothers, uh, Judah, and he does so two times. So I'm going to read this for you in a moment. I want you to look for these interactions. It's Joseph, then Judah. Joseph, then Judah. Uh, Joseph doesn't have much to say in this chapter. Uh, This chapter will finally lead to the longest speech in Genesis where Judah makes an appeal for grace. Look at verse 14, and we'll read most of the chapter. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Joseph said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he, that's Joseph, said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up with him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? 
And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of my mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, uh, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, there, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring uh, down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Let's stop there for a moment. Here are the two chief brothers in the family interact about the future of Benjamin. The two chief brothers are becoming uh, Joshua and Judah. This is a historic conversation that will determine the future of the promised seed and the promised line. And uh, as we read through it, the, the conversation moves quickly to a final long speech by Judah, the longest speech in Genesis. Joseph starts here by asking what the men have done, and if they thought that he wouldn't figure it out. Judah does not try to defend his brothers, but states that God has found out the guilt of the brothers, or of his servants. Judah does not explain their innocence, or suggest that he's been framed, or that Benjamin's been framed in some way. Instead, he says that God has found them guilty. Perhaps in that one line that we read, and I tried to emphasize as we read, you see it might be an acknowledgement that they deserve what they get because what they did years before to Joshua, or to Joseph, to Joseph. Judah also suggests that all the men are now servants of Joseph, but Joseph moves quickly to the crux of the final test. He offers his verdict, and he says that justice demands that only Benjamin Remain as a slave in verse 7. And men and women, this is the test. Will the brothers abandon Benjamin like they did Joseph years before? Well, we've read it. Judah appeals the decision of the prime minister. And his words fill all of verses uh, 18 through the end of the chapter. There are a few important characteristics of his speech I want to point out to you that that were really moving to me this week, and I I trust it will be helpful to you as well. First, I want to point out how often Judah mentions his father in his appeal. Okay, so this is his last and final speech. 
to appeal to uh, this powerful ruler, and he uses the word father 15, 15 times in his speech. If you highlight these in your Bible, see it over and over and over again. My father, our father, our father, our father, our father. In this speech, he emphasizes how Benjamin's punishment will affect his father back in Canaan. But second, I want you to notice that he uses his father's favoritism of Benjamin in a positive way. He hasn't done this before. It's always been viewed negatively. It's been something he's been resentful for. But in a few places in the text, like in verse 20, looking there in verse 20, He'll say, and uh, he'll say, his father loves him. Or in verse 30, this is a powerful way to say it. At the end of that verse, it says, his life is bound up in the boy's life. That's the same favoritism that has caused division and dissension among the brothers. And that last phrase, his life is bound up in the boy's life, is, is Jacob's soul is knit with the boy's soul. It's at this point, I believe, that we begin to see glimpses of God's love, great love for us. The Father's great love for believers. Can we say this? Can we say God's life is bound up in our lives? I think we can. But for Judah here, instead of being jealous of this special relationship... He uses this favoritism to say that his father experiences a close, inseparable tie with the youngest brother. See, Judah no longer resents the favoritism, but he sees his father with love and he considers how this is going to affect him. His elderly years, how this is going to crush him. And Judah shows genuine concern for his father's emotional and physical well-being. This is a tender moment. Do you remember when you realized that your parents were real people with strengths and weaknesses, with failures and goals of their own? Perhaps some of you were a little better at this than I was, more sensitive and observant but I, I don't remember thinking much about the way my father felt or remember thinking of any of his weaknesses at all growing up. But when I was in my mid-twenties, I remember we were visiting my parents and I saw my father fall on ice in the church parking lot. You know, you, you see my father, big man, right? 6'6". Six, six. I, I thought he had no weaknesses. <laughs> it hit me uh, last night that he was, at that time, about as old as I am now. <laughs> when I saw him fall on ice in the church parking lot, I saw, I think for the first time in my life, his vulnerability and his pain. I hadn't seen it before, but my heart felt for him, and that was good for me. It gave me new insight, and as I matured as a young man, gave me insight to hear from him later how he felt about life and work and his own parents' declining health and condition. Judah loves his father. 
even with the favoritism. And he feels the pain that Jacob will experience if Benjamin does not return. Finally, I just point out in the text something that struck me that was new, this part, uh, is that uh, Judah probably reveals here something to Joseph that he doesn't know before. That is, I don't think he knew how Jacob dealt with the loss of Joseph. So in verse 28, he learns, Jacob, Jacob, or Joseph learns for the first time that his father thinks that he was torn to pieces by a wild animal and killed. All of this is going to soon overwhelm Joseph so he won't be able to hold it all together in the near future. But I want to make one more lesson for us about Judah's appeal. Judah stands here before the prime minister of Egypt and he humbly asks for grace on account of his elderly father who will die if Benjamin is not there. Yet Judah's appeal is not done and we haven't read all of it. We'll look at verses 32 through 34 to see what else he suggests here. Look at verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. Saying, if, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Not only are all the boys back in Egypt with Benjamin here, Judah now asks to be his substitute. And men and women, as far as I can see in the Bible, this is the first instance of human substitution found anywhere in the Bible. It seems that Judah is so deeply moved in, in this moment for his father and for his youngest brother that he willingly sacrifices himself for their own well-being. I have to say a few things about Judah. My, how he has changed, right? How he passes the test. He won't let this happen again. But might I also say, oh, how Judah reminds us of someone who comes later to rescue the ones whom his father loves. So I was finishing this sermon in my study last night. The greater this message of this passage finally hit me like a ton of bricks. I'd been studying, parsing through everything about Joseph and Judah and Jacob, but Then I stopped, and I raised my hand to Jesus, and I fell to my knees in tears, thanking Jesus for his substitutionary sacrifice for my sins. Years after Judah in Scripture comes a man through the line of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who comes as a substitute to bear the sins of many. As much as I'm drawn to the sacrifice and the love of Judah for his father and for his brother Benjamin, 
They're but a shadow pointing to something greater, a greater sacrifice of Jesus, my Savior. So Judah ends here by saying that he fears to see the evil that would find his father if the boy didn't return. And then offers himself up as a slave to free the boy so he can go back home. Well, that leads to some final responses in Genesis 45. Um, I know you feel like the sermon is done. Okay. This won't take long. I want to I offer some comments on Genesis 45 and point out a few things about some people who respond to all of this. Judah's daring act in his speech leads Joseph first to respond. Look with me at verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all, or of, of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty." And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that is speaking to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is Joseph's response, and I'll just point out three things here very briefly. First, Joseph responds almost immediately with concern for his father. After he gets rid of all of the uh, Egyptians, and he's only with his family, he speaks, I think, in Hebrew to them and says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And you'll notice throughout his speech, how he talks about father. He always modifies it with a pronoun. And the pronoun is my. It's his father too. He is concerned 
about his father. I think Judah's speech greatly moved Joseph so he can't help but break down and say, is my father okay? Is he alive? Joseph not only responds with immediate concern for his father, he also responds with incredible grace. He does not allow the brothers to languish in fear or distress. But he draws them into him to offer sweet and kind reassurances to them. I'm Joseph. The one you sold down into slavery in Egypt. But come near to me now. Please. Again, how he reminds us of Jesus. We are the ones who are guilty. Caught in our sins with consciences that torture us about our sins. We are the ones that need to be forgiven. We are the people of murderous hearts like the brothers. We're the ones who stand guilty like these brothers. But then Jesus says to us, I am Jesus. The one whom you crucified. Come near. I am Jesus, the one who you betrayed. Come near to me. Do you see that? Do you feel how this points us to Jesus? Do you see Jesus' incredible grace to you? I think Joseph can respond with grace here because he understands something. He understands that the main actor behind the scene who's been working and acting through all of this is God. He says it in his response over and over again. And, and, and we don't have the time to probe all the depths of this. But if you look in the middle of verse 5, he says, You sold me, but God sent me before you to preserve life. He says in verse 7, God sent me to preserve a remnant and to keep alive many survivors. And then in verse 8, he says, It was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph responds with incredible grace, and I think the only people who can respond this way are the ones who walk closely with God and understand that he works even in our difficulties to accomplish things for his own glory. See, there's a divine dimension behind every one of our trials and struggles. And God is working, and he is sovereign, and he's leading. He's he's changing me. He's changing you in the midst of your suffering and trial. It's not out of his control. Joseph knows that. That's, That's what enables him to respond with such incredible grace to people who've abused and offended him. But then finally, I want to point out that Joseph responds in love. Not only with concern for his father and with incredible grace, but in love. The only way we could explain this is to say that Joseph moves through his brother's sins and betrayals and chooses to love them. Joseph has not been nursing the grievance in private for years. I heard a preacher this week preaching on this text, and he talked about this idea of nursing the grievance. Joseph has not been nursing the grievance with these guys. If he had been through the 20 years, it would have been 
would not have been, come near to me, please. It would have been, bring out the shackles. I want the heaviest chains. Put them in prison. Limited rations. Instead, Joseph says, come near to me, please. You say, but they didn't even ask for forgiveness. They didn't say the seven necessary words that we teach our children to say. Right, I get this right? I am sorry or wrong. Will you forgive me? That's seven words, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? They didn't even say that. No. But Joseph overcomes that with great love. I mean, could there be a more vivid illustration of the proverb, love covers a multitude of sins? A proverb so important, it's not only in the Proverbs, it's also in the New Testament in 1 Peter. Love covers a multitude of sins. You say, I have my own way to deal with others. I protect myself. I write people off. They, they won't hurt me again. That's my way. Well, that's not God's way. If God's heart wasn't full of love for you in your own sinfulness, if his heart wasn't bent toward your own reconciliation, then none of us would be in this room listening to this sermon today. And so the question we ask here is, are we going to insist on our own pound of flesh Insist on our own way, or will we allow God to fill our hearts with love and grace that covers others with it? Listen, I know what some of you are experiencing, what some of you are experiencing in your trials and difficulties I would never want to experience. I know how much pain some of you are in, and that's just what I know. But please do not nurse the grievance. Ask God for love and grace. Like Joseph here. Come near to me, please. I had a pastor friend send me a text this morning. This would be to encourage those of you who are going through those relational difficulties. Reminded me of the words of a song I love. It says, that soul who on Jesus has leaned for repose. And from the words of God, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, God says, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you're, or my brother or sister are going through significant trial or relational difficulty, God's never going to forsake you in that. And perhaps he'll give you the grace to love, like Joseph here. Joseph moves through their hatred and anger with love, and he finishes by kissing and weeping with his brothers, and he draws them in, falls on them, and insists that they bring Jacob and his family back down to Egypt. That's when Pharaoh responds 
uh, verses 16 through 20. I won't read it, but Pharaoh just reinforces what Joseph has said. Yeah, come on down. Give them wagons. Tell them to travel light. They'll have the best in the fat of the land. It's a significant promise during a severe famine. But that leads in verses 21 through 28 to Jacob's final response. And uh, it comes at the end, but look with me at verse 21. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys located, loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. <laughs> he knows these brothers really well. He knows it might get a little prickly on the way home. They're thinking, okay, how are we going to tell dad about this? Joseph's still alive. I don't know what all that stuff with the blood and the coat was. Don't quarrel on the way. Okay. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. I wonder why he couldn't believe these guys. Bunch of liars. But verse 27, but when they told him all the words of Joseph... Which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I'll go and see him before I die. Get the picture of this old man getting up immediately at this point and making his way to the wagon and sitting in the wagon. Let's go see Joseph. So this second trip ends with a final test and a final response. Jacob is about to experience something he never thought would be possible because of Joseph's confidence in God's sovereignty. And because of Joseph's determination to show grace and to cover in love. This could only happen because Joseph says, come near. Come near to these people who hated him and hurt him and sold him. And this could only be true for us men and women as Jesus says to us, come near. Come near to a group of people who have hated and hurt me because of your own sinfulness. Wickedness. Come near. Those who have hurted and hated and crucified me. Men and women, may our Savior's love strike us today. And may it steer us in our own relationship with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, it's so easy for me to grow self-righteous, confident in my own works, 
and to look at the brothers in condemnation. It's so easy for us to forget all, all of the sins for which you have forgiven us in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, may we not look at our brothers and sisters and demand a pound of flesh. But Lord, fill our hearts. Fill our hearts with love and grace so that we can say to the one who offended us, come near please. Come near, please. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't be frightened. Lord, thank you for Jesus. May we as a church love like Jesus. And for this, we will need the power and the presence of the ongoing Spirit of God who lives within us. Enable us, O Lord, to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.